Greetings, listeners. This is Travis. Hi, I'm Justin. Hi, Justin. Um, hey, Travis. <laughs> our smoothest start yet. Woo! We're getting better and better. That's what my mom tells me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, my. mine too. Okay. Uh, well, at it's least my, my grandma are listening. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We support. No, my mom people. won't, but my grandmother will. Okay. Well. You got issues with your mom? <laughs> Is it because I kept making jokes about her enlarged heart on that episode? I can't remember. It's, that. it's just this podcast in general. She just, when I mention it, I said, Mom, on the podcast, and she just shakes her head and lights up another cigarette. You know, it's, uh, she's like, I, I regret every decision I made regarding you right. as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, hey, well, we're back. Uh, we are back in the 1950s after a really. Uh, fun rip-roaring conversation about 1954 Sabrina uh, with Annie last week, which was super fun. Annie! Yeah. Uh, she's the We still got to work on our Annie theme song, Travis. Yeah. We could we could parody something from the musical Annie. Like, uh, Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, because yeah, I was thinking of borrowing from Amy what you want to do and, of course, substituting Annie. That's not in bad. There. But, uh, but, yes, we should probably just mix them together. Yeah. And I'm sure this is really fascinating for listeners to well, hear about. When they hear the finished track, they're going to know what they're the like. I was the there in the beginning. I was there. Yeah, it'll be great. And Annie will, uh, she'll hate it, <laughs> if we're honest. Um, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's why we're doing it. Yeah, mostly, mostly. Uh, so we, we kind of jumped around with the years, uh, because this isn't, you know, strictly chronological the way we run our series, right. but, um, we are in the mid fifties from here on out, give or take a couple films really. Mm-hmm. So, um, today is 1951 and that's kind of, we're leaving the, the beginning of the decade behind, but this is a very interesting first time watch for me, Justin. It is the original. And if you don't even uh, have any bearing on what the original of this series is, that's okay. I don't blame you. Uh, the original Godzilla from 1954. Yes. Yeah, 1954. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I can't wait to talk about it because uh, I was surprised at what kind of a movie it was, Justin. How about you? Yeah, no, I was too, man. I've seen a fair amount of Godzilla movies. Actually, apparently there's oh, 36. Okay. I counted them today. <laughs> yeah, um, that's not enough. Between, yeah. between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think I saw this actual movie at a friend's house when I was six or seven years old. Oh gosh. Um, and their, their dad was really into Godzilla. And so they sat me down and, and uh, honestly, I didn't remember any of what this movie is about, which yeah. I'm really excited to talk about today. I just remembered Godzilla, which was awesome. Sure. And uh, actually, my kids watched this uh, with me, and uh, they were nice. I, I don't know. I think one of them was kind of trying to track the plot, and the other one was just like, "When's Godzilla showing up?" You know. So, well, um, lucky I, for that kid, um, quite a bit. <laughs> often, the answer is often. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a really uh, interestingly uh, layered movie that you can also somehow watch with your kids. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. So yeah. Uh, it'll be great to talk about, but before we get into that, we're going to talk about what we watched this week. 
throwing it over to hey, you. Hey Travis, man. you should you should go first. <laughs> oh, okay. That was like we're playing like a th- we're having a thumb war at a distance. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll go first. Um, so, it's only a distance of a few feet, Travis. I can see you right across the table. What, okay. are, you, what are you trying to say? That's we're not doing this I, in the same room or no, something? No, in the same, you know, we are of the same mind, not even in the same Jeez. room. Yeah. So yeah, come on, man. Shared brain, doing? man. We're, we, we're fine. Uh, everything's fine Shared here brain. and it's good and great. Uh, everything's fine. Okay. So I've been on a little bit of a uh, 90s, early 2000s, like crime movies I haven't seen in a while or have never seen and sort of want to reappraise. I feel like, I don't know about you, Justin, but like the, you know, the decade we both grew up in was the 90s. And then we, you know, were kind of coming of age in the early 2000s. And then uh, there's a lot of movies in that space that like maybe I wasn't old enough for. And so my my parents might have rented them at Blockbuster uh, but I never got around to watching them because by the time I was old enough, it was like in the rearview mirror. So I talked about a simple plan before, which is right. You know what? A ninety. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, around the same era. Um, so another movie I caught recently was Christopher Nolan's Insomnia from two thousand two. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, uh huh. So we have. Uh, I don't know, Justin, like a. Uh, it's not love hate, but like I have like an appreciate hate relationship with Christopher Nolan, maybe. Um, yes. Where like you can't deny the craft and the like crazy, almost like Kubrick esque, Kubrickian, you know, like attention to detail that this guy brings to the table as a director, um, especially like visually. And like he sticks to his guns on weird stuff. You know, he's this guy who's yeah. like. I need to film everything with an IMAX camera, even though they weigh 8,000 pounds and the movie's going to cost twice as much. And like, we will do everything on film. He's like celluloid or die, you know, like we call those people artists. Sure. Yeah. He is. He's a very specific breed of filmmaker. And that's, that's cool. I like people who, you know, work from a place of conviction. Uh, But there's times when like, I'm watching a Christopher Nolan movie, whether it's like the prestige, which I like a lot um, or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, his Batman movies, uh, Inception, any of the like kind of later era Nolan stuff uh, where he he's very like intellectual. I think it's just who he is mm-hmm. as a person and his his movies get bogged down by that, in my opinion, and become a little yes. less character effective because they're just mm-hmm. like he gets obsessed with the idea of the movie and less interested in the the people in the story. And so that's sort of my struggle with some Nolan movies that like, I want to enjoy them because they're so well crafted. But like if if the characters aren't relatable and I care about them, right. and I, then I get lost, you know. So Insomnia, yeah. 2002. This is a this is a murder mystery cop movie. So like mm-hmm. as far as scale goes, it is way, way more contained than uh, anything he would do after it or probably ever again, if I'm honest, because I don't see him making these kinds of movies ever again now that he's right. Mr. you know billion dollars at the box office kind of a guy and it stars uh the cast rules i mean it has al pacino in the lead um it has uh hillary swank uh robin williams and it's this really kind of uh dreary almost neo noir kind of uh like cop cop story of sorts uh but what's the hook of it that i think is pretty fun is it takes place in uh, a little place called Alaska uh, hmm, where never heard of it 
Yeah, never heard of it. Uh, where it doesn't get dark uh, hardly at all. And so the movie plays with this idea of, you know, an L.A. cop coming to Alaska to help an uh, old friend on a case. And he he can't handle the light. And uh, the light becomes this interesting metaphor for his uh, sort of under the under the radar illicit cop activities. And it's really good. Like, I, it makes me yearn for the days of mm. Christopher Nolan kind of needed to just take a good script that was thrown his way and make it better because of his solid directing skill. So it's what's really interesting about it is it has some of those like signature Nolan tricks. It has the like the like let's cut to a weird kind of impressionistic thing like it's this in this movie it's a, like a macro shot a super zoomed in shot of like a a blood uh drop kind of like hmm. spreading on a piece of cloth. Um, and then that, that, that wraps around to make a lot more sense and have context at the end. Um, it has, you know, uh, a, a male character at the center who is very good at what he does, but also burdened by sort of like the guilt of the system, which you'll see in like every Christopher Nolan movie, you know, it's yeah. how he does Batman. It's in, in, in inception. It's basically the, the character Leo plays and what's really cool about this movie is it's paced really well and you don't hear robin williams's voice till like almost an hour in it's like 40 something minutes in and then you don't see his face until like 10 minutes after that so i just think they use him really well it's one of those mm. cases where like you take a broad comedically known actor aside from his you know uh dead poet society kind of uh types yeah. of movies and it, he uh, it, everybody rules in this movie pacino rules mm. hillary swank is so good and uh, Robin Williams is really, really good in a dramatic kind of creepy role. Mm. So I would, I would recommend if you've like not heard of this movie and you're like Christopher Nolan made what? Go watch it because it's not like, uh, it's not like Inception. It's smaller than that. And if you haven't seen it for a long time and you kind of forgot about it, I think it's worth a rewatch because uh, it's got some stuff to say. No spoilers because mm. we're not talking about the movie today, but it's definitely got some stuff to say. So, do you remember mm. Insomnia at all, Justin? I'm sure you saw it at some point, right? I can't, I, I honestly can't remember. When you said it, I was at first, alas, everyone, yeah. I was thinking you meant Memento. Okay, uh, yeah, totally, yeah. Totally different movie. So I don't, re I know the movie you're talking about, but I can't honestly remember if I've, if I've seen it or not. Okay. So well, I think, I exciting think contribution. for all of the reasons I just listed, you would enjoy it, but uh, hopefully listeners yeah, I, it will. sounds like I would. Yeah. Um, and, and I definitely would enjoy it more than the movie uh, I watched um, this oh week. Oh boy. Here um, comes. Which was, I think, 1988. Um, I don't even, why mention the year if you don't know what year it is? I mean, what's the point of doing? Am I trying to impress somebody by the year? Am I trying to help them out? Like, if they type in this, are they not going to find it? I'm impressed. Because there is only one Oliver and Company. By oh, Disney. Boy. oh uh, boy! And my, you know, again, I have children in the house, um, and so of course we're not always gonna. It's like, hey, shut up, seven-year-old. We're gonna watch Insomnia now. No, we tried to limit that to mommy and daddy time. So anyway, <laughs> yes, I did. We have the privilege of watching Oliver and Company, oh, which boy. um, if you, I, I'm pretty sure I saw this as a kid, Travis. I oh, mean, because yeah. you know, this was this was definitely on VHS plenty uh, yep. when we were growing up. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, um, they don't make them like they used to, let's put it that way. And, uh, that, that comes with some baggage. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, by the way, you were it, right. It is 1988 on the dot. So, oh, oh man, color and also this movie is wow. an hour and 14 minutes. That's, an, that's barely a movie, but keep going. It is a blessing though, in this case, <laughs> um, 
No, it to, to be totally fair. So Oliver and Company, it's like a little bit of a it's a updated, transplanted take on um, Oliver Twist, right? Sure. Except that instead of people, we've got cats and dogs. Yeah, because um, that's what kids like, and it's in New York. But it is, um, huh? I guess it's just it's a really good indicator, Travis. Sometimes we see movies and that we talk about movies on this show. Where they could be from the 30s or the 40s or, you know, they're from a a few years ago. Sure. And we go, wow, that's still so relevant for today. Like, you know, (laughs) nothing has changed. This is really great. But then I see a kid's movie like this and it's like, oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, they're not making kid's movies like this anymore. Yeah. And some of that, I think, is just, you know, kind of politics and cultural norms change. Um, You know, there's one part where the villain is chasing the, the dogs and the kid. Uh, and he like loads a gun. That's just not something that you really, you know, do anymore. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it's, it's like, wow, it's just very, very different kind of storytelling. Right. Um, uh, so, so overall, the broad brush strokes, I don't think we really need to spend any uh, serious amount of time considering this movie, but it's a musical also. And Billy Joel actually voices oh, the dog boy. in there. And uh, he has he performs some of the songs in there. So, I mean, it's like it is a movie of its time Um, Mm -hmm. and there's no getting away from it. Honestly, overall production is is not bad. Um, It's not like a a flawless movie by any metric (laughs) for my money. Yeah. Um, And and the kids kind of enjoyed it, you know, but it's it's um, wow. It's pretty light. And I think because it just it didn't it didn't exist to try to um, try to get anyone to say, what is this movie saying? Yeah. You know, interestingly, though, and something that still happens today, there is a really interesting impulse, I, in my opinion, of folks that take movies that are clearly marketed almost exclusively for children yep. and they throw in some bizarro adult stuff. OK, uh, what do I mean by that? Yeah. Like in this movie. They have their, so it's all dogs, right? Anthropomorphic dogs. Uh-huh. And so um, there's one dog that's like a, a show poodle, right? She right. was like won all these national awards. It's actually voiced by Bette Midler, um, <laughs> who uh, sings too. Whenever nice. I, I hear the name Bette Midler, Travis, post Seinfeld, that's just all I can think about. Oh, man. Is, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's such a great storyline in great Seinfeld. Great stuff. Yeah. But um, anyway, if you haven't seen that, listeners, please do yourself a favor. Not Oliver and Company. But uh, Seinfeld. Yeah. Anyway, so so Bette Midler's Georgetta in the movie is is singing the song that introduces her right to her lavish lifestyle, and so she's a poodle, and so she's you know her fur is cut in such a way that she kind of has like um, uh, a large amount of fur around from like her neck down to kind of her rib cage, mm-hmm. and at one point as she's singing the song, she pu- the character pushes her fur in such a way as to perfectly outline like uh, surgical implants of breasts. <laughs> And it's just really bizarre. I have to tell you, like, I it's like, you know, I don't think my kids picked up on it. Thank goodness, because I don't really want to talk about that in the middle of a movie called Oliver and Company about who, cats and dogs. Who but, is that for? Like, Well, that's exactly my point, because my wife and I just looked at each other like, what? You know, spelled W-U-T. Just like, what What yeah. do we do with that? Yeah. Because um, it's not really funny, even. It's just, like, kind of awkward. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. But... Maybe that's the Puritan impulse. I don't know, Travis. No, but, that's uh, weird. It, I don't care who you it, are. That's weird. That's <laughs> so. So there's that, and then there's just the uh, what this movie really reminded me of was um, even even as a lad, I was very strange. Apparently, 
this was the exact kind of movie as a kid that I hated watching. Yeah. Uh, because it was not because it was like not serious. You know, I wasn't like dad more insomnia. <laughs> um, but because uh, it is like nightmarish in its approach to fantasy. Mm. What I mean by that is that they've got this like the the villain in here right has like this Cadillac and these Dobermans and he's chasing oh, the, man, the I'm, heroes. I'm all vaguely over remembering the city. these things as you're saying them. <laughs> we we definitely. Own I'm sorry, Travis. No, it's fine. I'll uh, forgive you. And, and so anyway, the 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 characters are our protagonists are on the scooter right that their owner, who's a man, is driving down and and they go down the stairs of the subway. And and I think as a viewer, even today, I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, of course, the bad guys are going to have to get out on foot. Nope. The the Cadillac fits down perfectly down the stairs of the subway. And uh, and then it, it is running down the, the subway platform with them. And then they're like, oh, crap. Well, let's let's get off and go on the subway track because that's safe. And <laughs> so they do that. And then it's like, okay, clearly the bad guys have to get up. They got to change their plan, right? Nope. The Cadillac fits perfectly on the subway track, and its tires are burned up and explode, and its rims just start riding on the track uh, as if it was made for them. Yeah. So it's just this kind of I, – I just really <laughs> – I am a little bit insane, I guess, because even – I watch that now, and I just think this I, – I just – I hate that because it's almost <laughs> like that stuff belongs in Lynch. Like it's yeah. just so like – it's like a nightmare where it's like, what the crap? How is this possible? How is this happening? And so for me, it's just, it's not fun. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. fun then. It's not fun now. Anyway, that's just my own neuroses, listeners. Nice. We can just, you can fast forward um, past that. Anyway, so I, I got to give a pass on that movie. Yeah. I'm going to say there's there's lots of kids' movies, even movies that are made for kids that are worth watching. And, and, and that's not one of them. Mm, I don't think that one has stood the test yeah. of time for many reasons, not the least of which is Billy Joel voicing a dog, riding on top of a construction crane, <laughs> singing, why should I worry? Why should I care? Oh, man. You know what's funny, Justin? And tell me if you can relate to this. And, I, you know, I don't want to take 10 more minutes on this. But, like, yeah. I find myself as a father of three children, you know, two of them similar ages to your own, uh, yeah. you know, introducing kids to films and TV and, and stuff like that because it's, you know, it's not right. just a thing I enjoy. I think it's an important thing, you know, just like yeah. introducing them to good music or good paintings or whatever, right? Like we obviously, right. we do this podcast because we value, uh, you know, critically thinking about, you know, art. We mm -hmm. just happen to be two uneducated, unqualified movie nerds doing it. Uh, <laughs> but I find the burden of helping to shape my kids' taste in these things, like, Mm. I just wonder, like, I know other people with kids the same age and they just like throw on whatever or watch what their kids want to watch. And I'm like, I can't do it. Like, no. I can't like, no, it's, it's not just a matter of like, you know, age appropriate content and figuring out right. like, oh, what are they ready to watch? And what are they not ready to watch? Whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But just this idea of like, no, you can't watch that because it's bad. Like, it's stupid. Right. I'm not going to let you watch that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some parents look at that and me and they just go like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> yeah. No, I, those people are probably defined as normal, but yeah. I am firmly yeah. in your camp uh, because I think the way that you and I m might view that is more like art is it is food. So if you're going to consume, you kind of do consume art, not in like a, uh, you know, when we talk about consumerism and art, that usually brings up bad images of, yeah. you know, like pop 
popcorn flicks that are just like low grade, sure. not even worthy of being called B movie. But I don't mean it in that term. I mean that like what you 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 are what you intake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you eat really healthy food. Your body's probably going to thank you and and work better than if you just eat Lay's potato chips. There goes that sponsor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dang you it, know, Justin. so it, and You're I think the like same flies. is true for <laughs> the same is true for um, any art. You know, if you um, if you if all you watch is like soap operas, daytime soaps. Um, there's not really anything there for you to really examine yeah. and really like understand or, or, you know, even even have like as a passing thought any of the questions we tr- we are interested in trying to answer on this show. Yeah. Um, because you just don't develop a taste for it. So yeah, yeah. I, I I feel the same way as you, man. I I want to as much as possible to try to develop that um that taste. Not not hopefully for snobbishness yeah, or like oh no, it's not on the Criterion collection, please, <laughs> children. We're not watching this. We're watching just, Apocalypse you, Now tonight and I don't want to hear any complaints. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you could you could quickly go into like some ludicrous territory. But yeah. I you know, for me it's just like, hey, so, some stuff is good and there's a lot of subjectivity in there. But there's so much good out there that I think most folks can just agree on. That yeah, I want to yeah, expose yeah. them to, to as, as much of that as I can so that when they go out and they start making decisions on their own as, as young people, um, that hopefully they make choices that are going to they're going to benefit them. Because I, one of the reasons we do this, hopefully this isn't too highfalutin, Travis, just shut me down if we get there, um, is like we want to we want to try to show or explain at least why we think art has real value. Yeah, yeah. It's not one of those things that just gets on the chopping block first, right? Like, which tends to happen at, like, some schools and things, right? Yeah. Like, oh, we're running out of money. I guess we'll not have art class anymore. It's like, you know, art, culture does not run on just a bunch of business and yeah, factories, of course. you know? That's that's not all of culture. Anyway, yeah. folks, art has value. Ooh, I've art is lost good. it completely. Yeah, no, you're good. You're yeah. good. And, you know, you did mention making wise choices, you know, and I think uh, one thing we can both agree on is the wise choice, as I'm doing right now, is to drink a delicious, uh, tasty carbonated beverage, beverage called Dr. Pepper. Um, and <laughs> I just want those good folks at Dr. Pepper to know uh, that we endorse you uh, as a beverage. Yeah, you were. I right. mean, after all, invented by a doctor, so it must be right. healthy. It's it's probably healthy. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I think they're in league with Lay's, and I've 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 yeah. I've gotten word that Lay's has already sent a missive to them. So I think that's well, you know I'm gonna sorry. keep sipping on this delicious, uh, nutritious Dr Pepper, and we're going to uh, dive into the dark bubbling seas of 1954's Godzilla. Okay. Uh, I finished my Dr. Pepper and uh, I have just have to was say. Was it delicious? It was delicious and it has a crispness that other sodas just don't seem to have. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Anyway. Uh, okay. So we're talking about 1954's Godzilla. Uh, before we talk about the movie individually, I think we have to talk about sort of the franchise as a whole a little bit and um, the cultural impact of this series because I, I think you'd be hard-pressed, Justin, to talk to a normal person on the street who's just like a casual movie watcher or even even a little bit of a film nerd, honestly, and be like, hey, have you seen the original Godzilla? And they would be like, oh, yeah, the one from 2000 mm-hmm. or, oh, yeah, the one from the <laughs> 80s or, oh, yeah, the one from the 70s. Yeah. You know, there's there. this is like without any uh, caveat, this is the longest running film franchise of all time, bar none. There are 
what, 35, 36? 36. Yeah. 36 in, as of 2022. There you go. And, ca- and they're say, in production on another one. No kidding, because the last couple they yeah. made made a bunch of freaking money. And so yeah. um, it, it's it's kind of impossible to suss out the beginning here, but this is, in fact, the beginning. This is the first hmm. feature film, um, and it, it, it's born out of very real things, uh, and it's hmm. also packaged in the same way that tons of movies of this time uh were packaged which was like as a b movie monster movie you know uh yeah. definitely has that that vibe to it so justin what is your you had mentioned before you'd seen a bunch of these i have only ever seen uh well i talked about on the podcast what like a couple seasons ago maybe the godzilla versus kong that came out yes a couple years ago did I saw that, mm-hmm. and I've seen the uh, Gareth Edwards, what is that, 2014 or something like that? Uh-huh, right around there, yeah. Yeah, that's like the, the newest Godzilla in name. Uh, re- Shouldn't have killed reboot. Brian Cranston so early. No. That's no, the issue. No. Well, it's one of the issues, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, um, oh man, it's a good first like 40 minutes or something like that, and then it just kind of keeps going. Uh, that's... That's uh, we can talk about uh, the Gareth Edwards one kind of in concurrently with the 54 version if you want to. But I've only seen, again, a couple of the new ones. And this is my first time watching the 54. And then I, I only know it from, you know, almost Sunset Boulevard levels of like these yeah. clips mm-hmm. are pervasive. The sound effects, as we'll talk about, are pervasive. And just the character just looms large, no pun intended, over so much of what we know about like pop culture like today and so yeah what what of these have you seen and 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 how have you how have you enjoyed them oh, or not um mo- most of the ones i've seen my friend were as uh, a kid from yeah. probably the ages of whenever i saw this one because i think this was the first one i ever saw um at the age of six or seven and then uh i watched several of the other ones i even saw some of the in like kind of the extended godzilla universe yeah i think there's a whole movie about mothra uh-huh. um which i did see um i did see i think i saw godzilla versus mecha godzilla um as it was released and it, it is as awesome as it sounds um, it's like robot Godzilla from outer space or something, oh, yeah. as I recall. Well, Mecha Godzilla um, pops up in the newest one too. So I've seen a Mecha wow. Godzilla, but yeah. Wow. That, I'm glad they brought that back. Well, um, it was too good to not bring yeah. back too good. <laughs> so yeah, um, honestly, most of these movies, I think at that level uh, as a kid, I was, I was watching it for kind of the dopamine fix of yeah. when do I get to see more big monsters? So um, and, and I did see the Matthew Broderick one uh-huh. uh, when that came out in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, I do re- that that intro that those those first scenes when they're on the sea. Yes, that, I forget. You know that that still rings with me. That was not bad. That was not a bad sequence. I got to rewatch um, that one because I haven't seen that since like I don't know. I saw that on DVD after like yeah. in the wake of it coming out, and it was a huge movie, like massive right. budget, huge like movie of the decade, like uh, expectations. Right. And then it totally like critically got it, destroyed, it, you know. Yeah, but it has a good yeah, and cast may, and stuff. It may be really bad. Yeah. I don't remember. Is I just remember the beginning and the end and Godzilla in the and middle. And I think there's baby uh, baby Godzillas in it, if I'm not mistaken. There there's, is there's baby Godzilla eggs um, somewhere. Yeah. And uh, and I had an action figure of Matthew Broderick actually, <laughs> and uh, I was carrying that action figure. Work. My dad was a uh, was a carpenter, and he was building a deck. 
Um, and uh, I was playing with that action. Matthew Broderick's action figure had it like a grappling hook or something, so it was kind of sweet swinging. And my dad was building a deck, so I was walking on these deck joists at the age of I don't know seven or whatever. And the action and, uh, figure everyone wants, Matthew Broderick. Yeah, I was like, "Where's Matthew, <laughs> folks?" At Toys R Us. Um, and uh, anyway, so I was walking on these deck joists, having a good old time with Matthew Broderick, because my dad was actually doing real work, and then. Uh, Boom, I slipped and, and split my head open on one of the deck joists, and uh, there was a lot of blood. Anyway, Godzilla, that, that's my that's where uh, you that's got Godzilla your scar? trauma there. You, don't you have a little a little nick on your yeah. forehead to this day? Yeah. Man, thanks a lot, yeah, Matthew that's, Broderick. Jeez. That's, yeah, it's all his fault. <laughs> litigation <laughs> litigation is still ongoing. <laughs> that's right. It's still ongoing. Yeah. Um, no, anyway, that was really apropos of nothing. Sorry for wasting everyone's time. But, um, you, you know, so the newer ones, Travis, I don't think I've seen actually yeah. any the Gareth Edwards one. I made the Matt, the Brian Cranston comment just because you, you explained that yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, And I thought That's, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but my kids now having seen this movie, they're, man, they want more Godzilla. And so I showed them a little bit of the original Godzilla versus Kong yeah. from 1963, I think. There mm-hmm. I go, naming useless dates again. Mm-hmm. And man, it is so, like, it's it's terrible, but it's kind of fun <laughs> to watch because it's so, I mean, it's just bad. All that suit, yeah. uh, the, the suitmation uh-huh. is just, oh golly, it is not good. And King Kong, like, it's like someone has levers to open his eyes. He's oh, like, yeah. huh? That's oh, how Godzilla man, is in this movie too. There's, I think, there's cables uh, operating Godzilla's right. eyes, which and, don't seem to and, blink and, a lot in this movie, but apparently they're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's a that's a brief, not very uh, efficient overview of. I, I've seen a fair amount of these movies, but um, I don't have any of them on like the repeat playlist or anything. But uh, but I think what is maybe most germane to our discussion today is that. The, maybe with exception to what America and Hollywood is trying to do with its Godzilla franchise now at Universal, mm-hmm. um, th- those movies went really far in the other direction from what this movie was. Sure, um, and 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 I agree with you that this came in an era where monster movies were just kind of they were kind of the thing. It was just a niche genre, and um, it, there there wasn't a lot of brain power or emotion invested in them, right? It was like, hey, want to go see the scary movie on date night? And you know, I, I don't know that any of them really stand the test of time, yeah, honestly. Yeah. In in terms of like, is this a really good movie? Not not is it you know it may be enjoyable and have fun sequences or something, sure. but you know, a, a lot of them are just not good, at least in my opinion. Yeah. This movie is in a different league. It is. It is. It's it's helmed by. Ishiro Honda, uh, that's the director, and then you've got uh, who apparently was a close personal friend of um, um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Yeah, Kurosawa. Yeah. So um, the cast is good. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, what's his name? Takashi uh, Shimura is in this one. That's our friend from yes, uh, Stray yes. Dog last yeah, season. Yeah, and um, I don't really care what you give him to do. If you put a camera on that man, his face, <laughs> his face is amazing. Like he just has I agree. a good face. Um, yes. And I think, you know, most importantly, uh, as the last bit of the background info before we get into what's it saying, um, this is in 1954 and the atomic bombs um, both hit uh, Japan in 1945. So we are nine years by the time of this release, uh, you know, detached from that. That's not the word I want to use. What am I trying to say? Well, it's only removed. been, it's just been nine years. Nine, nine years, years in removed. The future. Yes. So uh, very recent history, which obviously if you've watched the movie anytime recently comes into play big time. Um, and yeah, it's definitely, um, groundbreaking as far as technology and effects go. 
That doesn't mean all of them hold up, and we'll get into that. But um, let's get into the, the really interesting stuff, which is what is it saying? So I think one of the most striking things about this movie, Justin, is, and I think we should go through it kind of plot point by plot point, if that's cool with you. Okay. Yeah, um, let's do it. Because it's not, it's not one of those movies that has 87 plot points. It's got like six and we can, yeah. we can work our way through it without getting stuck on any one thing and boring everybody's to tears here. Um, the most striking thing about it is the way this thing opens um, with first mm. just the noises of something <laughs> like yeah. in 1954, this is the, the noises of a creature you've literally never heard before because what, what we all today know as like, Oh yeah. The uh, roars that the dinosaurs make in Jurassic park, right? That sort mm -hmm. of, spectrum of like sound effects that we're used to and we just somehow associate with dinosaurs even though there's very little scientific evidence to uh, indicate that dinosaurs reptiles have any vocal abilities at all um right they in they fact they they more than likely laughed <laughs> they uh, chuckled mildly to themselves yes. as they were going extinct uh, 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 i'm gonna eat you um they uh they, they they made the decision in this movie to make godzilla roar uh, and apparently the, the way that they did that was by like using a resin covered leather glove and grinding it against contrabass strings and then like, you know, putting it through reverb effects and stuff. So you what see, kid hasn't uh, I mean, I, you know? every kid's pastime, you know, just like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what I did as a kid. I don't know about you. Uh, so that's how it opens up. You hear the noises, you see the credits, you see the title, and then this score comes in, which is really cool and exciting sounding. And the opening sequences of, uh, like you mentioned, and I think they do this, redo this in the remake, um, it's of a ship kind of going down for unforeseen circumstances and just sort of... The, the, the beginning, uh, what, 40 minutes of this, 30 minutes mm -hmm. of this at least, is very... Um, show don't tell or tell don't show yeah. whatever the right version yeah. of that saying is where you don't the see the second one yeah yeah uh, you don't see the monster and stuff so the, the ship goes down and they're like what's going on uh, and so it's ominous and dreary and uh, it's freaky you know freaky and it's tense sad right tense. even today yeah I think um, the tone that's set by the opening sequences of like the ship goes down and it feels like a real thing, like urgent, tragic, mm. like we got to figure out what the heck happened out there. It, it's not at all like set PC at the beginning. It's really just like it, it almost feels documentary style or something. Um, and don't, don't you get the sense, Travis, that, or at least I got the sense that this movie was instantly way more interested in, in retaining and, and kind of maintaining a human component to sure. storytelling because as soon as these fishing boats go down, just like, I mean, in other words, not like no one, quote unquote, important is there on the world stage, right? Yeah, yeah, or even yeah. in Japan. But they've got, they, they make several, uh, or the filmmakers make several um, attempts and, and, sh and scenes are set explicitly just to show the wives of the fishermen. Yes. Just like worried and like, where are these people? So instantly yep. it's like, this is not, it's not a normal monster movie. You no. know, in the monster movie, usually it's like some person, maybe a villainous or some poor innocent person is like walking where they shouldn't be. And then, ah, and then, you know, you never hear about them again. Right. Right. Except somebody later is like, well, yes, we did lose someone 17 years ago. Yeah. But in this movie, instead, you get close-ups of people that look panic-stricken. Yeah. And just, do you know, do you have news? What happened to these people? Yeah. 
and I, I know for me at least it instantly put me in the place where I I wanted to know too. <laughs> sure. And where um I mean you kind of know by the movie's title I guess, but it I I don't know. I think it puts the viewer maybe in a different place where you want to you empathize with with the characters in the movie and just the the people as a whole. It's not just like the couple protagonists that mm-hmm. you spend most of the time with. You really feel I think for which I think the movie does very intentionally, you start to feel for this whole kind of group of people yeah. that are experiencing yeah. this, which I think is really uh, masterfully done in kind of a simple way. I agree. I totally agree. And it, it happens so early, like you said, like when this ship goes down, there's a group of people, mainly women, right, at this police station, and they are panicking. Like you said, and it does not feel like over-the-top b-movie acting it feels like real like horror and there's like people saying things like are there any survivors and immediately like i don't know less than 10 minutes into this movie i'm just looking at it like holy crap can you imagine being a japanese film goer nine years from the time you know the atomic bombs hit uh your your country's soil and the the devastation and like you're saying justin the collective mourning the collective panic the collective trauma of that which you know frankly like we as americans don't we don't do as well you know like we have some cultural moments where we have that attachment but it's like even something like 9 11 right the scale of it is not to say it's not tragic or anything but like the amount of lives we're talking about lost in the nuke the nukes from world war ii compared to something like that is it's not even a blip on the radar you know and so Uh, and this is nine years uh, right after. So you see these images of these folks panicking about an unknown terror that's starting to you know take lives little by little, and then uh, obviously that grows as the movie goes. And like immediately, I'm just thinking like, oh man, this movie knows exactly what it is. Like it it really has no um, pretense about like showing you know. In, in the trappings of a very on-the-nose, thinly-veiled allegory for, you know, nuclear destruction or the nuclear bomb or whatever, like, it, it is really concerned with the, the, the human fallout, you know, the yes. human um, consequences of all those things. And you see that in their faces. You see that in, like, the, the way that they shoot, Justin, like, when Godzilla first surfaces on the, uh, the, the island, right? The, I can't remember the name of the island, but there's, there's an island that you see in the beginning where the, the ship that's been uh, done. Odo washed. Island, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's this family, like, in this house, and they, they kind of know Godzilla's out there. Something's out there. People are starting to say it's Godzilla. And then the, the monster attacks. And again, in this sequence, you don't really see the monster. You just see what looks like a storm and, like, earthquake kind of typhoon-looking activity. But the way that house crumbles is, like, mm. so jarring and effective. It's not at all miniature-looking or, you know, um, right. c- comedic, like, oh, look at those effects. Right. It's It looks terrifying to me, you know? Um, and, and I agree. And immediately in that fallout, Justin, you start to get the idea introduced of radiation, you know, and when they when they come to see the destruction of that. So do you want to talk for a minute just about like how this movie goes about its laying out um, the parallels between the fictional B movie stuff in this movie and like the real world sort of horrors that they were definitely dealing with at the time wow yeah i mean i guess that's a you're probably there's probably many dissertations that have been written about that but um we'll we'll try 
I think the part of the magic of this movie and, and why, at least for me, this movie really holds up and it, it lasts um, a lot more than something like Godzilla vs. Kong 1963 um, is is because it is it is a B-movie in the sense that it's a it, it fits in that genre, right? There's a monster sure. and um, it's a guy in a suit and there's miniatures used to show destruction. But the the point that that's not that's not the intent I don't get from from Honda. Even if you don't know any of the history, I think it's it's pretty self evident watching this that his concerns, like we we just uh, touched on, are much more human. Yeah. And I think this movie, it, while it 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 does not exist in my opinion without um without uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima being struck with atomic sure. weapons. But I think that the genius of this movie is that it's not just some like overly simplistic metaphor yeah. for that. Yeah, there's more there. It's it's not just like. But I mean, part of the genius is there because later when you see that Godzilla is wrecking more and more carnage, um, and things get even more intense, which we can go into when we get there. You you get the sense that um, he that Honda is giving you a little insight into. What must have it looked like in yeah. in in and around Nagasaki and Hiroshima yeah. when people are just devastated? Uh, I I think I don't know that anyone knows like an exact total of how many people died in those two atomic blasts, but it's mm-hmm. somewhere around two hundred thousand people. Yeah, and and I think that you get that kind of scale in this movie, although they're not like you know, hey, here's the latest death toll. It's yeah. just pretty clear by the amount of destruction <laughs> that's it's going on. A lot. That, yeah. that that there's a lot of dead people. Um, and a lot of infrastructure is destroyed. And so I, I get the real sense that he is really... Tr- there is no way in, in heck that a movie um, about Hiroshima or Nagasaki could be made in 1950-anything, right. or probably 1960-anything. But you just you have this dinosaur-ish thing. You have Godzilla, and suddenly it's like fair game. We can kind of we can we can peel back the curtain a little yep. bit and try to give you a little taste of the horror and the devastation and the tragedy of just this mass wipeout. And so, like, you mentioned the total, Justin, and, like, you're, I think you're, you know, dead on for the estimates or whatever, but the one thing we do know is that the vast majority of the people who were killed in those those bombings were civilians. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. And no, there's no argument there. And the movie makes a distinct point, you know, in the, the amount of screen time it gives to military, to civilian characters to say, like, this has hit the people. You know what I mean? And right. um, the morning scenes you get, the scenes of the fallout, which, um, you know, we can get into uh, the hospital sequence after uh, mm. the, the real big uh, t- a Godzilla attack in the middle is, like, so reminiscent of like gone with the wind, you know, Yes, uh, you know, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. It's like, you see people and you, there's no score here. It's just like a camera kind of wandering around with one of our characters. Uh, and you just hear like screaming and there's a, there's a particular moment in there where like you hear a kid start screaming, no, 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 no. And then they like pan over and this kid is being restrained by someone and they're just carrying, uh, you know, their parent uh, mm-hmm. on a gurney away. It's like, Holy crap! This is not just popcorn movie stuff. No. Like, there's no. there's some real attempt to handle this with like the opposite of kid gloves, you know. Um, and in two two things, I'd like to add to that real quick. Um, one is that the, the the movie also has this extra layer where it's like Godzilla is not just a substitution for the atom bomb. 
because what awakens Godzilla is hydrogen bomb testing, yep. right? That's what the movie offers. And so you get the sense, too, where it's like humanity is its own worst enemy, mm-hmm. where we have we have we have awakened and or unleashed something even more horrific than the atom bomb by the usage of the atom bomb, right? Which is just this great, I mean, Cold War commentary on, you know, a fear that's still real today. I think we're a little more numb to it because it hasn't happened. But there's plenty of folks in the 50s through the Reagan era that thought uh, it's all going to end. We're just going to annihilate each other. And so you, I get a little taste of that from that, that subtext. Um, the second thing being, you're talking about that scene, which I agree is really, uh, affecting still with the kid. And then there's a kid covering their eyes, um, in the, in the hospital too. That really got me. I don't know Um, about you, but I was just like, no, it was was not okay. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the perfect way, it was not okay. Yeah. Um, but another, the other scene that I think got me even more than that, is when you it so so later on we've talked about how some of the miniatures are still really good like the house the and train some of the, the train crash the, is really good too I like that's early on um that the that's, train crash is good looks really there's good. there's a couple like fire engines that crash unfortunately those don't those don't look nearly as good no they're talking they're talking trucks all the way <laughs> but but the that is right next to a scene where a mother hugs her child yeah. and says as hell and fire and brimstone are raining down around them and says it's okay we're going to go see daddy soon we're going to uh, go to where daddy is yeah and it's like oh my i can't laugh at the fire truck now that's not even funny in 2022 yeah uh cuz that that it, it's <laughs> i wonder if honda honestly cho- he's like hmm that fire truck doesn't look quite convincing. I know how I'll stop them from laughing. Yeah, yeah. I will give them the 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 thickest slice of hell that this movie can serve up. Yeah. And again, it's not the the tragedy and the the effectiveness of this movie to me is not in just like seeing Godzilla, which is still pretty affecting. Even I, I think for especially in light of what they were working with in 1954 and having no Hollywood machine behind them, sure. I, it's amazing that they pulled that off. In my opinion, mm-hmm. but. But that that scene with the mom and her daughter just shows me this movie. It's about the people. Yeah, I think Honda is really trying to say, look, it's it's for that mother and that child. It's for all of us. We shouldn't want to just destroy, uh, which is another subplot of the movie, right? About how to should we destroy Godzilla? How to destroy Godzilla? Yeah, yeah. But we shouldn't. We don't want. We shouldn't want to just kill and destroy each other. What is wrong with us? How right. do we stop this from happening? Yeah. And to me, that that makes this movie last and and speak even more strongly. Yeah. Well, there's what's cool about this movie is it is so set PC, you know, with the Godzilla stuff and the destruction and the, this, you know, again, no pun intended, but the scale of what they're trying to do, showing the monster destroying the city and attacking people and burning people alive and all that. Definitely, there was like time and effort and attention put into all these things. There's innovation there with again, what's called suitmation technology, which is basically like we can't the the stop motion would take too long, so we're putting a dude in a suit. We're building everything to scale. Everything is real models, so that's all new, right? But the people at the center of the story, there's only four of them, you know, that matter really. There's a lot of other characters um, that we cut to, like the mother and the daughter and other people. But we have uh, Takashi Shimura who uh, he plays Dr. Yamani and then um, uh, Akiko Harata plays Sirizawa, who is the amazingly eye-patched uh, other doctor <laughs> guy. Uh, yeah. And then the other two, which are sort of like our co-protagonists, which is also interesting and kind of uh, ahead of its time in a way, because you don't just have like a dude who's kind of honky at the center of the story or a damsel in distress. Yeah. You have this like 
couple who are dealing with real life, like stages of life stuff. Um, uh, Ogata and Yamani and this, um, this couple at the center of the story, they're like going through this collective horrible thing that nobody knows what to do about it. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And at the same time, there's just this little thread, which isn't like too much or too little in my opinion of like, they love each other and he needs to ask for the father's blessing um, to Kashi Shimura's character, the father. And uh, it, like they are dealing with that stuff alongside the like existential threat of this creature. Um, and the, to me, just in the plot here with these four, you know, you've got uh, Takashi Shimura's character mm-hmm. playing the doctor who it's honestly in 1954 in a movie like this, that is made in Japan about Japanese trauma in a lot of ways and the effects that the nuclear b- uh, bombs had on that um, larger community and everything. There's a like conservationist like, <laughs> like thread here where yeah. like over yeah. and over again, his character is like, I, I don't think we should kill this thing. I think we should study it. Like, I think we need to know more about this creature. And he, you know, he picks up the prehistoric, you know, organism out of the footprint at one point. And he's like, this yeah. is an amazing discovery. And so there's, there's a piece there that like, it doesn't go anywhere because the threat is too much, but still it's like, I, I thought I found that the, the sort of stick to your guns mentality of keeping that in the script and making it part of the final cut and making it who his character was, was really interesting um, yeah, it's stuff that we wouldn't see like play out until like much, much, much later where whole movies are about, you know, like our effect on nature and the climate and, and you know, all that kinds of stuff. Um, and then Sarazawa's an interesting character, the eye patch sort of secretive doctor who's working on this project that you don't find out what it is until a little bit later in the movie. Um, they have a relationship, Ogata and Sirizawa, where they were what in the war together, I think is what it's sort yeah. of hinted at. That's how mm-hmm. he lost his eye. They both have affection for Yamani, um, the female protagonist. And there's a, it's like a love triangle that they don't make matter so much that it becomes about the love triangle, you know, kind of right. thing. Um, and then, uh, the main thing that happens with the people, Justin is so tied to the themes, which is. Uh, Sirizawa has a way. He has a new form of technology, a new weapon uh, to destroy just like masses of creatures underneath the water if if need be or, or whatever. And this thing, Justin, has an amazing name. It is called the Oxygen Destroyer. and Which apparently in Japanese is pronounced Oxygen Destroyer. <laughs> it's true because he says uh, Oxygen Destroyer. More Japanese things. Uh <laughs> So there's, you know, that's where like the name of the thing. And, um, I almost want to say the look of it, except for that. It kind of looks like weirdly like a little nuke or something. There's something yeah. about it that yeah. has like, yep. uh, the design of real, real things, but, but like, you know, to a sci-fi movie, B movie kind of degree. Um, and so it becomes about, like you said, like Godzilla seems like this kind of perfect analog for, like we have let loose the nuclear bomb and Godzilla has been loosed or whatever. But then there's this whole other point to the story, which is there's always going to be another breakthrough in technology. There's always going to be another depth to man's um, wanting the power to destroy his enemies. And this character is burdened by just possessing it and putting it to use at all. And man, like 
it just, it comes in in the third act there in a way that's like the most tense stuff in this movie happens between those four characters, not between Godzilla and electrical, you know, lines or buildings or tanks right. or something like that. Right. No, I agree, Travis. And, and just to, you know, again, I have not seen the newer Godzilla movie with yeah. Brian Cranston in it, but I think what we're talking about so perfectly, again, having not seen the movie, uh, it, it seems to encapsulate why this movie really works and why that one didn't. Um, because this movie is still the the final the final shot of this movie is not you know spoiler alert it's not like Godzilla right I mean he definitely yeah. figures into the final frame but when the oxygen destroyer uh, takes care of Godzilla destroys yes <laughs> then yeah, oh check it out took his oxygen um, then then you've got all these four people and you know one of them and and, and Mr Eyepatch. Uh, Dr. Serizawa decides to to kill himself because he does not want anyone to yep. replicate or or force him to replicate this device again. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Dr. Yamani sitting down. Everyone weeps. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, this movie knows exactly that. That's why the, a story like this would matter, because it's going to affect us all. Yeah. It doesn't matter because, oh, I want to see Godzilla destroy some cool buildings. I mean, yeah, that that has its place. That can be interesting, but that's not a story. Yeah, yeah. The story is what happens to the people that are involved. And and just for me that, you know, that he cuts that line, <laughs> that's a that's a great, uh, that's just a great piece of movie making. Because yeah. you've got them pulling up the line, you know, and it's, you know, are they, did they get him in time? No, they didn't. And they just pull up this empty line. Yeah. And then that th- those three characters, right, that are left, Ogata and y- Yamani and his daughter, Amiko Yamani, they, everyone cries, essentially, for a different reason, yeah. I feel like. And it's just this great um, layering of, like, how how damned humanity is, yep. I think, in some sense. And how I, I totally agree with you, Travis. There's always gonna be something else. It's not like if we even if we solved, you know, tomorrow morning we woke up and, and nuclear weapons were gone yeah. from the world. Um guess what? Um we don't we don't need those to cause havoc and yeah. chaos and terror and death. We've been doing it since since people picked up sticks to do it, you yeah. know. I am just really struck by how how that movie zeroed in on that Travis and, and I'm trying to bring it back to the the newer Godzilla that that you've told me about mm-hmm. where when when Brian Cranston character was really involved in the story it sounded really compelling and really interesting because yep. you've got you've got the tension of the monster but also the tension of this guy right yes. but then when you just remove him oh now we've just got the monster and mm-hmm. that that's not I'm not a I'm not a, a physical monster like Godzilla so I I for me, it would sound like I can't relate anymore. Sure. Um, would you say that is part of the problem if yeah. you were going to compare kind of the human element in those two? Totally. I mean, like you cast Brian Cranston and you just, I'm sorry, but you use him the whole time. Like there's no, <laughs> right. this isn't Psycho where like killing off the lead character, you know, an hour in is like some sort of cool gotcha moment. Yeah. The two that I've seen, right? I haven't seen, what is it called? Godzilla, King of Monsters. It was like the Godzilla yeah. sequel before Kong Skull Island or I don't know. There's those four new ones. The two that I've seen to me, they play as direct uh, kind of spiritual successors to one, the, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla is trying to be this movie in that it is serious and somber in tone. It's trying to be real scary, not like kind of goofy action comedy mm-hmm. scary. 
Um, and the reason it doesn't uh, succeed is because it doesn't have these human characters at the heart all the way through. Even though, you know, this movie gets away with killing a very important character, just it does it in a meaningful way at the time in the story that makes sense. You know, he he literally, right. his last words are like, I hope you two will be happy. You know, it's like, holy yeah. crap, you know, like this is yeah. just supposed to be a dumb monster movie and then someone's, you know, sacrificing <laughs> themselves for the good of humanity, you know. Anyway, right. uh, and then the... Kong, Godzilla versus Kong, the newest one, is definitely not trying to be this kind of movie. It's trying to be like, oh, you know all those like other ones, Mecha Godzilla, Mothra, She Godzilla, Godzilla Max, all of those like they exist so that people can enjoy watching two people smash you know action figures together. That is that is right. what that movie. It's an analog for that. And you know, like I think I said when I reviewed it at the time, it was the first movie I saw back in theaters after a long time and. Uh, isolation um, and yeah. for what it was like man it, it packed a really fun let's go to the theater and have a collective experience punch but like that has limited value you know it is it mm -hmm. is what it is so um, before we um, get into our wrap-up Justin I want to give us both an opportunity to touch on anything uh, we haven't already said I mean th this this movie's plot is pretty simple um, there's not like some sort of like big mystery or like winding twisting element um, but there are two things. Uh, it's one thing I want to touch on in two examples. The music is really, really effective. Yeah. Um, it has a big 1950s orchestral score, but it's just a really good one. And I'm like listening to it just and thinking, why don't they just like redo this for some of the new movies? Because it's got right. such a good hook. It's got that like dun dun yes. dun 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 dun. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, and it happens like it, from the opening credits, and then it comes in the big Godzilla attack, and it comes back at the end, um, and then the other musical sequence is the one that I think is most like the the most beautiful piece of filmmaking in the whole movie, which is they're all in um, Sirizawa's lab, and he they're trying to convince him, you know, Emiko and Ogata are trying to convince him, like you've got to use this thing to destroy the monster. There's no other way, and he's like laying out the case. He's like, I can't do this. The the, the world powers will see me do this and want to use it for worse things, you know? And then they look over to the TV and a news broadcast pops up. And what is playing mm. on the news broadcast is this like amazing, gorgeous hymn sung by like hundreds of Japanese girls uh, while they like, it, it looks seriously, like it just looks like post-war World War II footage if you watch the movie. Yeah. And they keep cutting back to these girls. And what's so effective about it is the realness of that scope and tragedy um, that, you know, the people who are suffering from radiation. There's a point in this movie, Justin, where they point a Geiger counter at a little boy's forehead and it goes off the charts. And you just right. think for a moment, like, what does that mean for that kid? Like, I mean, holy right. actual crap. They just told me without saying anything in this movie that this kid is radioactive and he's going to like suffer until he dies essentially, you right. know? Um, so they keep cutting back to these girls singing and it's like, it is just rows and rows and rows of girls singing things like, Oh, please. Will our dead come back to us? You know? And mm. it's like, it is really harrowing. Uh, and I don't know what to say other than like this. If you think this movie is like any of its sequels, just please watch it and know that it is something. It is something different, man. It is something different. I, I'm right there with you, Travis, and and I would echo um, what you said and just uh, add my perspective on on that um, scene too with the, the girls' choir. 
and hearing them say, uh, give us peace. That's repeated in that, in that song, right? Oh, peace, give us your light. And yeah. I, I think for me, there is something to be said about the subtext of every other. You, you have lots of uh, people in this movie and, and the production value is just kind of nuts to me. Like the film starts out by thanking the, the Japanese Coast Guard for helping them. Uh, get it done you know there's fighter planes non-miniatures in this movie yep uh there's uh and miniatures <laughs> yeah yeah there are miniatures also but there's also real life ones yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. there's like real life depth charges they use in uh-huh. this movie which is pretty cool even for 1954 it just yep. looks good still um but but and you've got hundreds of extras you know sometimes people are all running kind of uh pell-mell all over the place but the, the, the time that you see the most people together organized and doing something is that scene um, yeah. with the girls. Yeah. And to me, I think that if I'm going to read anything into that, it's Honda saying he still, I mean, a guy that has lived through, uh, uh, from a society that has lived through something that no other culture has, right? Thank goodness. Yep. Lived through nuclear holocaust. He is saying, I think that there are still more people then there are not people who would stand up and say, I yeah. just want to live a peaceful life. Yeah. And so to me, it's a really amazing moment of hope in a movie that's pretty bleak and yeah. nobody really knows how to kill Godzilla until there's the oxygen destroyer. Thank goodness. You do have this real, <laughs> you have this real ray of hope and, and this, this tone and the movie is not hopeful overall. No. I mean, it ends with, with Yamani, Dr. Yamani saying, we we you've killed Godzilla, but if if hydrogen bombs keep getting tested around the world, I bet that someday somewhere another Godzilla will rise. It's like uh, it's like it, you you could chalk that up to be like, oh great, here's like pre Marvel stinger before Marvel. No, but I don't think I I think that's a bad read. They didn't know that the sequel was happening in 1954. No. That's not how things worked then. So there's no you know what I mean. Like we we are trained to think that way now. But right. you have to take every last line of a movie from this era as this is our last thing to say. And if that's their last thing to say, then it is like it is just like a stamp at the a period at the end of the sentence of everything the movie was was saying, which is like, uh, by the way, if you didn't get it, you know, uh, this could happen again, period. You know, right. like um, it's it's really, really convicted in what it is saying, I think. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I would I totally agree with you. I mean, we're kind of bleeding over, I guess. Into you know, would we would we recommend you yeah. watch? Yeah. Okay. It? Let me let but, me tell uh, a story that might uh, deflate the somberness of the conversation as it was needed to be. Uh, it's you know in line with the movie that we wouldn't be like, oh, this is joke fest two thousand. Right. Uh, however. There is a kind of amusing anecdote that I, I I can't verify the historicity with like a really solid source, but just the idea that this could have happened makes me kind of happy. Um, apparently, there's a sort of a legend about this movie that when they were in pre-production and working on the script, Honda and one of the producers were, were up on a tall, tall building in Tokyo, and they were standing there uh, with some other like touristy onlooker people um, and they were talking through like, okay, so Godzilla is going to come in from this direction. He's going to stomp over the building there and rip off that clock face from that clock tower, you know, and they were literally going through the steps of the destruction of 
of the Tokyo, of the destruction of Tokyo sequence. And as they're saying these things, people are listening to what they're saying and becoming very, very deeply concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. And by the time they got back down to the street level, they literally were like pulled aside by authorities and questioned like, what are you doing? What are you planning? <laughs> um, and I just think that's kind of, uh, right. kind of amazing. Yes, the art has uh, has become reality, I guess. I, I think it's just amazing that this movie, that these folks had the courage to make it. I yeah. mean, it'd, it'd, be, it'd be one thing to make it, you know, like today, sure. um, you know, generations away. But for, for folks to have lived through that hell yeah. and then to just be like, you know what? I think we need to tell the world about our experience. Yeah. Uh, my hat's still off to them. That, that takes a, a, lot of, a lot of courage and a lot of wisdom that, uh, that we can still benefit from today. As we are wont to do, Justin, we we're not very uh, we don't hold our card our cards all that close to the vest <laughs> when it comes uh, to answering no. our final question. That would be a boring show if we were like, and this happens, but I'm not going to tell you how I feel about it until the end. <laughs> how would you answer our final questions? Uh, is this worth people's time? And how often would you rewatch it? Yeah, it's worth your time. I I, I think uh, you know it might almost be required viewing. Um, because this is, this is a great movie. If you like movies, um, if you are like, Hey monsters, if you are interested in world war two history, especially how it ended, I think this movie would be interesting. If you're interested in nuclear proliferation and, um, the fate of the atomic question, I, I think this movie is really, at least here in 2022, it's still really relevant. And it has so much to say that it still rings true and that is it, it does it without being preachy. And I think that's because it's told from the experience of folks that lived through that. Um, they didn't read this in a book and decide to make it. Uh, who, who knows what kind of tragedy um, they suffered in their own lives uh, because of this. Um, and, and yet this movie is done without also, I think what makes it kind of amazing is it's not trying to portray Japan as a victim. They're trying to, uh, if anything, just give a give a warning, say, hey, we lived through this. I don't think anyone else wants to, so why don't we do something about it? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the world at large, at least the superpowers, didn't really listen, but yeah. um, it, it's, still a, it's still a good message. Um, I, I would re-watch this movie. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a difficult watch, um, and even though it deals with some heavy things, I, I, would, I would watch it once a year, yeah. I think. Um, it, it, yeah, I think once a year is about, is about good for me. What about you? Yeah, well, you know, the other Japanese film we've covered is Stray Dog. And right. these two would make a really interesting double billing, don't you think? Yeah, because you've absolutely. Got, you like two stylistically, like wildly different movies, but both confirming what the other one says about like Japan and moving forward in the future, you know, kind of a thing. Um, one of them is sort of the somber side of the coin. This one, you know, Godzilla is that one. And it, it really says like, this is the reality of what has occurred. And stray dog is more about like, okay, how do we put our next, next foot forward? You know, can we put our next foot forward? And so for that reason, like it's, it's totally worth your time. And I, I mean, with, with the one big asterisk of like, 
you've got to just give it the grace, give it the leeway of like, there are going to be sequences in this where you're like, whoa, those effects look really good. And then like you get an hour in and you're like, okay, most of this looks pretty janky, you know? Um, you just have to give it that, you know, and this film is worth it. It's worth you giving a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, um, you know, leeway or whatever to just get, get the good out of it because most of the thrust of what it's saying, most of the goodness of what it's saying is, is so much more important when you watch the movie than, you know, whether Godzilla's breath looks like, you know, a fog machine or whether Godzilla's breath looks (laughs) atomic or what, what, what have you, um, yeah, I think it's a really valuable lesson for American audiences to see this, you know, because we, again, like you said, thank, thank goodness that no other country in the world has had to suffer the same fate. But like, if you just want a little piece of what, what it, it, this movie engenders feelings, man, you know, even though it's mm-hmm. uh, a, a goofy monster movie on one level, maybe at the surface level, like it engenders the feeling of dread and terror that um, we were in the Cold War area, at least on this side of the globe, just afraid of possibly experiencing. Um, they, like you said, they lived it. And this is, th- these are the faces and the cries and the voices of people who really, they really did uh, experience this. So it's good. It's really good. And uh, hey, it's not too long. It's an hour and 36 minutes. So like, if you're one of those people who's like, I'm not going to put two hours into that. Don't, don't, don't do that. It's, it's worth your time. I'd rewatch it every couple years just because I think the kid crying moment would bum me out, Justin. But other than that. Well, Travis, we've made it through uh, four episodes now, I think, in the 50s. Yes. And uh, what is coming? I think a first is coming up next week. Howdy, howdy, partner. Uh, that's my best cowboy voice. And uh, oh, we're doing a Western. Wow. High noon, 1952. Yeah. Uh, should be good. Well, I thought it was Gary Cooper in the room. So yeah. well done. I'll have to work on my Gary Cooper. My, my Jimmy Stewart's a little ahead of my Gary Cooper, uh, which is not saying a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to watch this. Hopefully you'll be back with us next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Happy trails. Let the movie speak. Hey, since you're still here and still listening, thank you, by the way, we'd like to ask an additional favor of you. We have social media. It's a thing on the internet. And all you need to do is find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and like and subscribe. I know this is annoying, but we have to ask you because we want more people to hear the show. In addition to that, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.